Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. Uh, an idea that can change the world means that change is part of the recipe. And change is not something people are necessarily comfortable with. And so what is the art of the idea of becoming a reality if it's so difficult to change people's hearts and minds? And this was at the front of my mind when I ran across an author and social researcher uh, by the name of Michael McQueen, um, who has just written a book called Mindstuck. Michael, great to have you on The Great Conversation. It's wonderful to spend some time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to have fun because change is something that I've embraced all my life, but mm -hmm. I'm not a normal human being, <laughs> right? So you, um, you, your book, Mindstuck, also has a subtitle calling, calling it out as the mastering the art of changing minds. Tell me about being stuck and why you globbed onto that subject. Mm. I think it's something we can all relate to. Even the most open-minded amongst us will have some things that for us, we just struggle to revise a belief, a, a mindset, an assumption that we're like, you know, that to me just feels so fundamentally true and fundamentally part of who I am and what my experience is. But then when someone presents you with information or ideas that challenges that, it can be difficult to be properly open-minded. Now, that doesn't mean you have to change your mind about everything. There are some things that I think for all of us ought to be like from an ethical and moral standpoint are non-negotiables. But there are so many things in life that actually, if we're really honest, we can be just really stubborn about. And that's all of us. But I think we're seeing that especially play out, particularly in modern times with social media that rewards strong and obstinate views. I mean, the algorithms love extremes so what you see on instagram what you see on facebook or even linkedin these typically are the views that are most extreme because the algorithms bump them to the top of your feed and so there's often this sense that we the, the temperature's been turned up around most ideas and people have seen increasingly we've seen that ideology and ideas and identity are conflated so people aren't just you know them who that have an individual that has an idea they become their thinking which makes us more stubborn than ever. So, I mean, I've just seen it so often over the years in my client work. I mean, I've spent you know two decades working with businesses who are trying to figure out what's changing and then gear up for disruption and the things that will impact them in the years ahead, be that AI, robotics, generational change. And I've read, written a whole lot of books about that stuff. But what is, what's always interested me is why smart people don't change. You know, I'll work with clients. I'm like, they've read all the books they know all the things logically as to what they need to do, and yet they're still stuck. So what I wanted to do is essentially look at why that happens. And then if you're a leader, how do you try and shift the dial of people when they do get into that very obstinate, stubborn position? And because you're a voracious learner, your research is definitely uh, spans the world. You don't have any problem calling people up and uh, asking researchers and uh, analysts and so forth, exactly what the problem is. And and what I, I tell you, I wrote a line after reading all about this. I wrote a line and that is Michael McQueen thinks we are living in the age of stubbornness. Mm. And yet it, but there's a nuance to that. And that is there's layers of history that have led up to that moment, including, yep. it was beautiful, including the whole nature of how we think about debates or mm. arguments. Tell me about that. That was beautiful. Going back in history and going, here's where it started, but yeah. how did we layer upon that to to the age of stubbornness, if you if you will? 
it's interesting because so often we think about the great the great orators, the great debaters, the great thinkers of history, particularly you go to, you know, in antiquity, the, the Plato's, the Socrates, the Aristotle's of the world, typically their approach to debate. I mean, Aristotle essentially formed our understanding, our first understanding of the notion of influence and persuasion. So he looked at it as, you know, three things, so logos, ethos, and pathos. And he sort of tried to codify what is it that influences or persuades other people to think differently and so I look at that in the book a fair bit in terms of what are some of those fundamentals that we need to recapture because their approach to debate, their approach to argument was so different to what we see as debate today. Like if they were to sort of, if you were to drop Aristotle into, I don't know, the House of Representatives and just get him to see just how we debate issues, it would be unrecognizable. So their approach to debate was to essentially bring ideas to the table, present an argument, hear a different view and not ideally beat the other person, but take their perspective on and essentially can, you know, come together around issues, not in an effort to trounce your opponent, but to learn from them. And they had this beautiful word, this word um, aporia, so A-P-O-R-I-A. So aporia was the word that they used in antiquity to describe, and the best definition of it would be a sense of weightlessness when you get tripped up in an argument. And so for them, when, when, when your opponent made a point that made you stop and think maybe I'm wrong. That wasn't a source of shame because that's what we do in modern times. If someone essentially scores a point in a debate or an argument, typically we see that as you know, an infringement on our, our our ego. There's a sense of shame and embarrassment. We try and fight back. You know, we're unwilling to listen. That's so different to the the sort of the mentality in antiquity. And I feel like we need to almost recapture that sense of how do we humbly and open mindedly approach issues and ideas without feeling like you know, our, our, our identity or our egos at risk. And yet we, we see that so often play out. And I think so much of what we, we see in modern debate and argument can trace its roots back to the Enlightenment period. So the Enlightenment was this period where it was all about logic and evidence and essentially trying to coerce people into seeing reason, seeing the light. And the, the, the core assumption in the Enlightenment period, I think the person who typified this best was Francis Bacon. And he had this notion that essentially humans are reasonable and rational. If you just present someone with enough information and, and logical evidence, they'll see reason and see the light and change their view. And for like the last three or 400 years, that has shaped government policy, the way we governments communicate with us as the populace. That's changed, that shaped the world of academia and education. The problem is we've discovered in the last few years that it's not true. In fact, the more evidence you give to someone to try and persuade them when they're in a very stubborn mindset, the more they dig their heels in, the opposite effect occurs. They don't open up, they, they shut down. And so it, it, we've got this funny dynamic where we've got centuries of, of the way we argued that we've sort of lost track of. Then you overlay that with this very heady, logical, rational approach to trying to persuade people and essentially coerce them into thinking differently. And we, we find ourselves in this modern environment where, I mean, here we're chatting in 24 hours after the Iowa caucuses where we've seen Donald Trump, you know, a decisive victory in Iowa. And already you're seeing this the bitter debate, the divide around that whole discussion. And you've got different sides of arguments calling each other names. And there's no ability to actually come to the middle and learn. The problem is, where do we learn as humans? In the middle. When we're willing to discuss and learn and listen and be humble in our approach, we are seeing less and less of that, sadly. I was thinking too, as you were going through this, as you were writing about this, uh, uh, you were talking about the nature of our brain and how it really is tough work for the brain, mm. slow work to actually um, resolve these arguments in our heads as well as with <laughs> others, right? And our instinctual, our instinctual, which comes from the tribal nature of avoiding mm. threats, is much more 
efficient, if you will, and uh, and and therefore is the one we we have a default toward. That, I'd love that. Go go into that a little bit more. The instinctive mind. Yeah. So, and this is the the key for any leader. If you're trying to change your people's minds, for instance. The question you got to ask yourself is which, which mind are you trying to change? Because we often use this phrase that, you know, I'm of two minds about a certain decision. And we use that as a term to describe the nature, the nature of being indecisive. I don't know which way to go. But there's actually something fundamentally true about that. We are, as humans, always in two different minds. We operate with two different systems. So Daniel Kahneman talked about this as system one or system two thinking. There have been other psychologists who've tried to use this language and sort of pin down what's going on in our brains when we think and reason. In the book, I wanted to draw together a number of areas of research and essentially look at two different these two different minds under the label of our inquiry mind and our instinctive mind. So the inquiry mind, if you look at where that lives, the real estate of our inquiry mind is the front of our brains. It is the logical, reasonable, rational part of it, rational part of our brains. This is the part of our brains that Francis Bacon was speaking about. And so we can be reasonable and rational and and think things through in a linear, logical way. The problem is that takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of self-control. And the truth is we just don't do that anywhere near as much as we would like to think that we do. So Zoe Chance, who's a professor at Yale, her, her, her basically from her research, she'd say we only use our inquiry mind for 5 to 10% of our decision-making and our perception formation. So where does most of our thinking happen in a different mind, which I refer to as the instinctive mind. And that instinctive mind lives at the top of the brainstem in what's often referred to as the limbic system of our brains. So this is the very tribal, trigger happy, often prone to outrage. Um, a, a key part of this in our brains is the amygdala, which is where the fight and flight reflexes that we all have tend to live. Um, the thing that our instinctive mind also does is it's great at pattern recognition and it jumps to conclusions quickly. And so the tricky thing is our instinctive minds do respond, as you mentioned, to psychological threats the same way they do physical threats. I mean, our instinctive mind has kept us alive as a species for centuries because when a threat emerges, you know, a, a tiger jumps out from the bush, we react fast and that keeps us alive. The problem is, if you look at what happens in our brains, we do the same thing when we are threatened with an idea or a piece of information that threatens our sense of who we are and what we believe. That's where the shutting down dynamic tends to occur. That's where stubbornness resides. So if you want to change someone's mind, and this is really, I guess, the key thrust of the book is how do you change their instinctive mind rather than their inquiring mind? Because most of what we do is we try and appeal to the inquiring mind. We give logic and evidence and data, and we wonder why they're not changing their minds and seeing the lights because we're speaking to the wrong mind. But also um, the essential takeaway there for you leaders who are trying to go through change efforts is the thing I hear from all of you over and over again is people fear change. And mm -hmm. you illuminate that in the context of the limbic brain. Yeah, They don't fear change. What do they fear, Michael? Yeah, this was something I had to change my own mind about this as I was writing the book because you know, we've, we have heard that for years and, you know, you know, humans are just inherently afraid of change. We say that I've, I've written about that in books and just, it's almost a truism. We just assume that's the case. The interesting thing is the most recent years from a neuroscience perspective have revealed that it's not actually change that we're afraid of it's loss. And so the moment there's a sense of loss, in other words, if I have to change, there'll be a loss of certainty or power or dignity. Those are the three losses our instinctive minds feel most acutely so if there's a sense that what you're asking me to do means i might lose one of those things i will dig my heels and even if deep down i know that what you're suggesting is a really good idea and something that would benefit me 
And so rather than trying to upsell the benefits of change, you'd be better to spend a lot of time trying to understand what are the perceived losses people may have by embracing change and trying to lessen that loss. Um, because you know, often that's that's where the stubbornness kicks in. If you don't address those fears, the best arguments in the world and even the best incentives in the world, you, know, you can incentivize pe- people to change, but typically, and this is something we've looked at for decades from a, a behavioral economics perspective, we will far more acutely feel loss than perceive gain. And so you've got to start with where the losses for people are and try and address those or minimize them. And I love it because I'm sitting around the executive management team table and they all fill roles. One of the key challenges for the CEO, of course, is how do you get those roles to understand each other? The CEO mm. is basically the Berlitz dictionary to interpret the languages going across the table. But it strikes me as we talk about this, about loss, the CFO is struggling all the time with the uh, departmental managers around sunk costs. We keep mm-hmm. putting money towards something. Yep. So if I keep putting value on something that uh, is held to my identity, now we're talking a really profound and different kind of loss. Mm, that's it. And it's interesting. We, we we understand the concept of economic sunk cost, and we all you know, tend to live that out. The number of times you'll stick with a decision or a course of action or a purchase that you've made, even though it's not actually working out and it's not going to work out well for you in the long term. And you know that a better offer or a better option has come along. You'll stick with the original one because you've already spent so much money and so much time on it. And you know, essentially our past decisions rob, our, rob us of our future. So we do that economically, but we also do it psychologically. And so if you look at the notion of psychological sunk costs, this idea that we will have ideas and assumptions that we've we've invested so much time and energy in adhering to, or, you know, putting essentially our identity attached to our reputations attached to these. We've been advocates for a certain way of doing things or a certain view. So suddenly a new idea, updated information comes along that would actually be to our benefit to embrace, but that that sense of psychological sunk cost means we'll stick with things that will actually disadvantage us because the cost of change can be high. And so for any leader, if you want to look at you know, one of the primary losses that people do feel is that loss of dignity. If there's a sense in which I've got to, in, in changing my mind, I'm going to be embarrassed or lose face, people will, again, dig their heels in, even if deep down they know that what you're suggesting is a really good idea. And so then the question is, how do you help people change their perspective or their minds without forcing them into a corner where they've got to admit that they're an idiot in order to admit, admit they might have been wrong? And we so yeah. often, we, we, we back people into that corner and we wonder why. Essentially, the shame and the ego causes them to dig their heels in, even when deep down they know that change would be a good idea. And if you look at the kind of dialogue in the public in the public uh, space right mm. now, we are forcing stupid on people, aren't we? We're oh, forcing 100%. stupid on people. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> it. Or we're, we're making people feel like, feel like they have to change because they've been logic bullied into it. Like, surely can't you just see that dot, dot, dot? <laughs> um, and we wonder why people don't, eagerly and willingly go, oh, you know, yes, you are right. I am a fool. I will change my view. Like that's just, <laughs> just humans don't work that way. And also you do a really good job because you really are speaking at a core of identity. If again, if I've started, if I was born into a family and I go through an educational system and I go through a workplace and I, I my worldview is getting constructed around a certain mm. way of seeing the world. And then I'm in a company that's going through digital transformation and everything I learned is going out the window. My whole identity for what I was hired for, what I was educated for 
you know, that $300,000 a year Harvard education. Everything, my identity's out the door. And you Mm -hmm. called it something. You called it the unraveling effect. Tell us about it. Well, the unraveling effect is that idea that if I accept that maybe this one thing is not true that I believe, what else is there that could not be true? That I may have been misled in, or maybe I've, is is an outdated way of thinking. And so we've got to account for that. That idea that people that is a very scary thing because changing your mind is not just about adopting a new thought or belief or idea, but abandoning an old one. And so that 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 is a scary prospect. It's like stepping into the abyss. So we've got to give people space and time in their own time to be to be able to change their mind. And just sit with things and not feel like they've got to quickly rush to a conclusion, like the the epiphany. I've seen the light and I've changed my entire view. Sometimes that happens. Rarely, though, does that happen. You've got to also give people almost the ability to present a narrative, which is that this was their idea and that the process of change was something they were in control of. And I think, you know, we, we see this and Sheena Iyengar, who's a professor at Columbia, put this beautifully. She said the human, human mind equates choice with control. The moment we feel like we don't have choice over a process, particularly a process of change, our instinctive response is to dig in our heels. So do we give people agency and autonomy over the process and the timing of change, or do we expect them to change on our schedule and our timing without realizing that there's often a process that unraveling effect can be painful and difficult and confronting and it, it can take a little bit of time for people. Well, it's so true. Now, if we're talking about enlightened leadership too, this idea of leadership versus management, getting away mm. from the industrial age where you're talking about human resources and you're treating yeah. like machines. Yep. Um, this whole idea of being a guide, uh, creating this collaborative space for designing systems within the company, right? Mm-hmm. But no one thinks about that. Here's your yeah. system. Here's your job. Shut up and and do it. Right. Just do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and you're you're seeing that all the time. Because what do we give up? We they they are now fearful. They're worried more about certain measures of performance than actually yep. improving the measures over time, and yeah. all sorts of things happen. So, um, you you I, I wrote down. So you're really talking about the guide. You're not talking mm. about leader or management. Put yourself in a guide mode and start giving people choices for how they make uh, changes in their life. Yeah. I think it was Robert Frost who put it well. He said, I'm not a teacher, I'm an awakener. And ideally that's what a good leader does these days is you awaken people to new ways of thinking and operating. And I mean, it's like, if you're going to wake someone up from a deep sleep, do it gently. If you wake them up too quickly, they'll jump with a start and they'll lash out. And so waking people up, there's actually a bit of an art to that. And so one of the things that I think leaders would do well to do is firstly, make sure you've taken the time to listen. Have you actually listened to the concerns, the fears, that sense of disquiet and unease that people have got? Even just that as a process is is vitally important because people who are listened to are more likely to listen. And yet so often we go into any change agenda with a really clear message to what we're going to say. And if they say this, I'm going to say that. But have we actually taken them time to understand? Because sometimes the points of resistance are different from what we'd assumed. And yeah, you're you're on one you're on one track making a case for change, but actually that's not related to the issue. That's not the loss that they're they're fearing, for instance. And so, have you taken the time to listen? Because I think that's that's just an essential part of this. But also, self-deprecation and vulnerability are powerful. You know, as leaders, if you can, for instance, own the fact that changing your own mind about certain things has been difficult and be open and honest about that, but also acknowledge the fact that you haven't got all the answers yourself, invite people on the process of change. You know, like this is, this is where I think we should go. Just as it's my, it's my view. It's my sense. What do you think? 
And it's amazing how even if you ask people to give input on what the change should look like, you may well find that where you end up is exactly where you'd hoped to go as a leader, but because they felt as they were co-contributors in the process, they own it, they're committed to it. There's there's a real knack to doing that. It's a, it's a posture that as leaders, particularly those who are used to calling the shots and saying, this is where we're going, how it's going to look, that prescriptive it's prescriptive approach, they'll find this difficult because you know it's it's more efficient to just get people from A to B in a straight line. But typically, if you because want to bring you people's hearts and minds, it takes time. Because you give so many tips at that, I wrote a note to myself, be aware, don't rest on Michael's tips. And here's why I said that. Don't rest (laughs) on Michael's tips because of aporia. And that Mm. is if you're not manipulating people into a decision and you're truly looking for collaboration, because you can take some of those tips and it, you know, people can use that just to manipulate without understanding yet. What you're actually suggesting is a platform of trust that could lead for yourself, your uh, aporia, or theirs. Mm. Does that make sense? Am I reading you right? 100%. And it goes back to that principle from Dale Carnegie, you know, a century ago when he said, someone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And it's it's fun. I mean, it's a bit hokey, but it's fundamentally true. This idea that people feel like they've coerced or manipulated into changing um, they might do as you've asked because you've got a position of power or control. They may even do as you are, do as you ask or you command or expect as long as you're watching. But the moment you turn your back or the moment an incentive is removed, their mind doesn't change at all. They'll just go back to doing things the way they were doing them in the past. So th- this whole notion of bringing people on the, journey, on, on the journey of change and allowing that to be something they feel in control of and for it not to verge onto manipulation and coercion it is critical. I mean, that's tricky though, because the truth is, Manipulation and persuasion can be, they can look really similar. They can even smell pretty similar. But the reality is, it's the heart and the intention behind them that is fundamentally different. Are you trying to change people in a way that's going to benefit them? It can be a win win or a win win win. But if it's just a win for you and a lose for them, the process of change, that's where it becomes coercion or manipulation. And it might work in the short term, but it erodes so much trust and so much of the relationship. The, in the in the long run, it's never going to be a smart or a winning strategy. And so I think of all the me- methodologies for trying to figure out, is it persuasion? Is it manipulation? There's a, a, like a framework that I came across in some work I was doing with Rotary International a number of years ago. So Rotary have been my charity of choice. I've been an ambassador for them over the years. And they've got this beautiful thing they call the four-way test. And I just love this because I think it's a good way to, to, it's a grid to look at every decision that we make every approach that we take in our workplace professionally, but also personally. So the, the questions, it's a four, four question exercise. So is, is it true? Is it fair? Will it build goodwill or will it be beneficial to all concerned? And I love that that four way test is a really useful grid. Like when you're trying to get people to change, particularly, you know, is it fair? Will it build goodwill? Those are important questions to ask. Cause if the answer is no, Take a step back and just stop and think, do I need to approach this differently or have a different intention behind it? Because that's that's where manipulation starts to kick in. I, I think part of my worldview, Michael, is, and this is just from experience, I'm not going to any religious doctrine or anything, but mm-hmm. it, it strikes me as, you know, it's not really coincidence. There's a thread that happens when we start chasing ideas. And um, lately I've been having people who are, what I would say is trying to teach us how to be human in in a world <laughs> yeah. that's digitally transforming at a yeah. rapid rate, right? And and this whole trust platform, um, you speak to this 
Um, I'm not sure what you would call it. Oxytocin. Is it, do I have oxytocin, it? Oxytocin. Right? Yeah. Oxytocin. Tell me about yeah. oxytocin and oh, yeah. what, what that means to the trust platform we're trying to create here. Oh, it's, it's essential. So oxytocin is essentially the body's, um, our, our body's social bonding hormone. And it's an intensely powerful bonding hormone that's actually involved in babies and mothers when breastfeeding is occurring. It's actually one of those key core bonding things that happens. What's interesting, if you look at the, and, and Paul Zak, who's based at Claremont University, has done the most robust research looking at the role that oxytocin plays in building trust and that, that being an essential foundation for influence. So he's actually looked at what is it that causes our brains, and not just our brains, but apparently our hearts also release oxytocin, this hormone. It's not just a brain thing. And, and what is it that causes oxytocin? Because you, you know when it's there. Because what oxytocin feels like is, you know, when you walk away from a conversation and you're like, I just felt like I clicked with that person. I just gelled with them. I don't know why, but there was just something about them. I just, there was a resonate. There was a resonance between me and them. That's actually an unconscious signal. Your body has released oxytocin. And other times you'll leave a conversation with someone and you're like, they said all the right things, but I just, I just didn't gel with them. There was, I didn't vibe with them. That's because there wasn't a release of oxytocin. And so you look at what causes that release in our bodies and our brains of oxytocin, that sense of bonding with others that allows influence to occur typically authenticity, vulnerability, synchronicity. These are things that cause oxytocin to be released. It happens so unconsciously, we don't even know it's happening. But I was actually chatting with Paul a little while back about some of the more recent research he's been doing. And we're talking about particularly um, synchronicity, getting in sync with someone, how important that is for building that, that bond and that connection for oxytocin to be released. Because I've heard over the years, you've probably heard this too, like, now, if you're talking with someone, match their body language. So if they cross their leg, you cross your leg. If they touch their ear, you touch your ear. And to me, NLP. Thought, just a, it's yeah, and it's just a little bit icky. It feels a little bit contrived or even a bit manipulative to me. Right. I'm like, so I just, it's, I've never felt comfortable doing that as an active technique. So I said to Paul, I said, what, what have you discovered from a research perspective about how to build synchronicity? in a way that's just more natural. And I and I loved what he said. He said, if you want to connect with someone and it's going to be potentially a difficult conversation, don't do it over a coffee table or a boardroom table. Get out and go for a walk. Because what happens when you're walking side by side with someone is you'll naturally over time get in step. You start to match their cadence. That's that physical synchronicity of being in step actually causes your brains to have, if you look at the research, a bit of a mind meld. It's almost like you have a, a connection with that person. We see the same thing happen when groups of people sing or clap or dance together. There's actually a mind meld, that a sense of belonging and trust that is formed. Similar things happen when you walk alongside someone. So if you've got a tense conversation that you need to have with someone, get out and go for a walk because that that simple act of synchronicity with the other person actually creates that bond it releases oxytocin and it means the, your, your message is more likely to fall on open ears rather than closed ones and check your fears at the table because strength and assertiveness is not the way to mm. that kind of trust yeah, and, absolutely. and you juxtapose that very nicely you know this has been a wonderful conversation michael and i, I just want to ask one more question mm. And that is, what is your hope for your work? Oh, great question. In the world. So my hope would be that we relearn the ability to come together and listen and learn from each other. Cause I feel like that's something we've lost the ability to do in the last few years. Mm. And that's something that there's just something about the humility required to actually change our minds, which I think just, it brings out the best in all of us as human beings. And we have lost some of that in the last little while. Um, and I think particularly during the, the COVID years where people have been working remotely and in hybrid roles, 
digital connections are never the same. You know, we're often seeing some of those things I'm seeing for a lot of my clients right now, the conflicts they're walking into because they've never actually met their team members or built strong relationships of trust. Everything's been done digitally. So just trying to give people the skills of coming together again, because I feel like that's, we can do that and do that you know, in, a, in an authentic, meaningful way. So many of the things that are causing tension and issues would actually be alleviated pretty quickly. So that that is my goal. You know, um, I tried every morning and I spell it R-E dash member. I try to reconstitute uh-huh. myself and remember who I want to be, which is, you know, which is why I call myself a, a voracious learner because I want to stay in a change mode all the time. But yeah. I also went to a funeral lately, just to leave you with this, to, I'm anchoring what you just said. Mm. And I'm listening to speaker after speaker come up and say, Gary used to come alongside me when I was having difficulty. And he said, let's go for a walk. Let's put on our hats, our thinking wow. hats and go yep. for a walk. Person after person, you would have never known his impact if it, if it wasn't for his memorial. So Michael mm. McQueen, thank you. Heartfelt from the great conversation of myself, Ron Warman, thank you so much for your impact on the world. This has been a, a great conversation with Michael McQueen. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah.